uh, come to the passage today, and we ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are here in Exodus chapter 20, and for those who are visiting, just to uh, give you some background, we have been working our way through this massive book of Scripture, and for the last several weeks have been basically inching up to the law of God here laid out on Mount Sinai and striving to appreciate the relationship of this law to our own lives as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in this new covenant age. And today, we are finally going to look at one of the commandments, the very first one that is there in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And a lot of these messages, as we go on, the statements of the command are fairly short, and they're really not that hard to understand, and they're really not that hard to appreciate, even their application for us under the new covenant. But we do need to deepen our understanding of the significance of these things and really how connected they are to so many of the big things that God intends for our lives. And so a lot of these messages are going to take the form, not so much of explaining the, 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 the verses themselves, because again, they're pretty straightforward, but trying to help us understand how this all relates to everything that the Lord has been and continues to do in his world. And I'd like to begin our considerations of this first command with just the observation that human beings love and to celebrate greatness. Human beings love to recognize and to celebrate greatness. And that's reflected in so many ways in our daily lives. Maybe you haven't thought about it much before. But we instinctively talk about the things that we think are amazing. We instinctively talk about things that we find exciting. We find ourselves dwelling on and discussing things that inspire us because they put before us something great that is impressive, that is glorious, that we aspire to. And nobody really has to tell us. We just find ourselves dwelling on that and highlighting it and rejoicing in that. Human beings love to recognize and to celebrate greatness. And that longing for greatness is a lot of what drives our interest, even in the world of entertainment. I want to think for a moment about a television show that, quote, holds the distinction of winning streak in the Nielsen annual television ratings. It became the highest rated of all television programs in the United States overall for an unprecedented seven consecutive years. Think about the money that that program has generated. It's been written that it became the most expensive series on broadcast networks for advertisers who wanted to put their product or their message out there in connection with this program. At one point, if you wanted to put out a 30-second commercial to be aired as this program was going out, 
you were going to pay $700,000 for those 30 seconds. And if it was one of their sort of highlight or special programs, the advertising cost for 30 seconds went as high as $1.3 million. For some of their seasons, their ad revenue has exceeded $800 million. Now, this show continues today after a break. They are not doing as well now as they used to be. But still, one writer has called its success, quote, unparalleled in broadcasting history. It's also been described as the most impactful show in the history of television. Now, which one is it? Maybe you've guessed it. Maybe not. What show am I talking about? Here is its slogan. There are singers, then there are idols. And I've been describing the TV show American Idol. I don't bring this up because I watch this show or because I recommend that you watch it. You'll be fine if you stick with Jeopardy. But I'm drawing attention to this pop culture phenomenon because of the revealing name of the show. And it makes the point that really undergirds the message this morning. Americans have idols. Americans have idols, and apparently we want more idols. And that show is all about discovering them and promoting them, and celebrating them. But it isn't just Americans. I'll say it again. Human beings, we love to recognize and to celebrate greatness. Indeed, we were made to enjoy and to stand in awe of the ultimate greatness that is called transcendence. Or another way of saying it is simply that you and I were created to worship something greater, someone much bigger than ourselves. And the very first of God's Ten Commandments to the Israelites addressed that fundamental issue. And the Lord gives specific direction to how that longing is to be expressed, this longing for transcendence, this desire for worship. Exodus 20, verse 3, does say, You shall have no other gods before me. I would argue that that isn't just one among ten kind of relatively equal commandments. I believe it is put at the top of the list on purpose by the Lord. And in reality, it ends up encompassing all the other commandments that are to follow, all of them flow from this one very short but very full line. Because all those other commandments are ways in which the Lord is moving on these people to express this urge to worship, to recognize and worship him as the ultimate one, as the only God. And so the title of the message today is this, it's all about worship. It's all about worship. Now, this is a very short statement, 
and it's not really that hard to understand, but I still would like to make a few points as we begin to appreciate the significance of what it's, what's here. First of all, I'd like to highlight the strength of this commandment, even in the way that grammatically it's worded. And we can understand this even by comparing it to commandments or imperatives that we might give to other people in English. Think about a parent speaking to a child. And there are many times throughout the day where the parent is giving orders, telling the child to do this or not to do the other. And depending on the situation, there are different degrees of emphasis in how those commands are given. You may start out soft and tell your child, please come here. There may be times when you cut off the please and get a little shorter. And you get a little stern and you say, come here. And there may be times, again, depending on their response, and you say, come here right now. In fact, again, depending on the dynamic going on, maybe you're like my mother, and when things got really intense, she started to add names, not like bad names, but like every name, Kenneth, Glenn, Casillas, come here right now, okay? Our language and the emphasis gets across the point with differing degrees of strength. Well, in Hebrew, there are two main ways to give a negative commandment or a prohibition. You could just say plainly, do not do such and such, and there is a construction that expresses that, or you can put some emphasis on it and say, you must not do such and such. And that is the form that we find here, and in fact, all the prohibitions in the Decalogue, are worded in that strong way with that must-not construction. This is emphatic language, almost like shouting to get your attention. These were absolute imperatives for the people of Israel. There was no place for discussion or negotiation or adjustment or exceptions And so we want to appreciate the strength. God is not just sort of casually throwing these out as recommendations. But at the same time, there is some difficulty in translating the wording of some of this command, particularly the expression where in our version it says, you shall have no other gods before me, that little part before me. That is a legitimate way to translate it, meaning before me as in in my presence or in front of me. And if that is the way to translate it, the thrust is that as these people are gathering together in the place of worship to recognize Yahweh as their God, God is not going to tolerate images of other gods being there in his presence. That would be the specific prohibition. Now, we understand that the Lord is omnipresent And that as you approach him in one place, it doesn't mean that he isn't in some other place. And really, no matter where you worship him, if there are any other gods present, he would be able to observe them and realize what's going on. So ultimately, a command like this is repudiating the presence, the honor given to any other god at any time. And that could be one way of understanding the command. The other way 
is to translate it something like, you shall have no other gods, you must not have any other gods besides me, or over against me. That is, don't have any other gods in my place instead of me, or as my rival. And in fact, that is how the ancient versions translate it, such as the Greek translation we know as the Septuagint. Really, both translations, whether you're thinking of not having any other gods before me or over against me, end up in the same place. This command is calling for the exclusive worship of Yahweh. Now, that does bring up another issue, another question. When the Lord says, don't have any other gods before me or besides me, does that imply that other gods actually exist? And he's saying, you've got this whole cafeteria out there of gods that are in existence and that are real, and I just am calling on you to reject them and worship me, but he still recognizes that they are gods. Is that, in fact, what's happening here? Well, it sort of depends on what you mean by the word gods. And actually, when you look at the Hebrew term that translates gods throughout the Old Testament, it refers to a variety of supernatural beings. Sometimes it's talking actually about angels, and we believe that angels exist as beings with unusual powers created by God. Those could be a kind of Elohim. And it is also used for the false gods of the peoples of the ancient world, false gods, deities that they believed existed out there in the spiritual realm, but that are represented by these lifeless idols. Even with that, we have to recognize that there is an an angel, a fallen angel, by the name of Satan. And the Bible teaches that it is Satan that is ultimately behind the false gods that the nations of the world worship. So even there, even when these are lifeless things, and we don't believe that these spirit beings exist that are represented by them, there is still a supernatural power that's energizing that. There is still something real. It is evil. It is destructive, but it is still supernatural, And ultimately, as people are worshiping those things, they're offering worship to Satan himself. Exodus 20, verse 3, is not denying any of that. But what it is pointing out is that Yahweh is the only true God, the only one who actually deserves worship. You may use the word Elohim to refer to these other beings, but Yahweh is the only one, if I could use the English word, that you can describe in terms of actual deity. He is the only supreme being. He is the only one who deserves the worship of human beings. And this command is telling the Israelites to embrace him as such, as the only proper worship object of their worship. No other being, even if it is supernatural, deserves that kind of recognition or adoration. And so this verse is requiring monotheism in the midst of a world back in that day that was thoroughly polytheistic. It is calling on Israel to recognize the unique worth of Yahweh and to worship him alone. 
Now, that is the basic meaning of the first commandment. It isn't hard to understand, but to really appreciate the point here, we, we have to think of it in connection with the rest of Scripture because there are many other passages that speak to this issue of worshiping the Lord alone. And what I'd like to do this morning is to connect that one verse, this one commandment, actually with the storyline of the entire Bible. We're going to see worship, first of all, in relation to creation, second, worship in relation to the fall, third, worship in relation to redemption, and finally, worship in relation to the new creation that we are anticipating. So let's begin at creation. What is the relationship between worship and the first scene or the first episode in the story of the Bible. Genesis does not begin by saying, worship Yahweh alone because he is the creator. But in reality, it does teach that. And that is a huge point that we're to learn as we read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It is very clear in those passages that Yahweh is the source and the only source of everything. He alone speaks the world into existence. He alone forms man from the dust of the earth. He alone breathes life into man. And the only logical conclusion is that everything is made for him, for his glory, for his honor, and everyone created needs to recognize that. That is the first commandment. It is implicit there in the story of creation. And we see it even more specifically as we move on in Genesis uh, toward the end of chapter 1 and and read verses 26 to 28. It's at that point that God says, going to make man in our image and after our likeness. And that means, among other things, that we have the unique capacity to do what? To image God, to display him, to reflect his character, to put his perfections on display. Why? So that he will receive the honor that he deserves for being the source of those perfections. And being made in the image of God, we are called upon to exercise dominion over the rest of the earth. We are called upon to take our special godlike abilities and serve as God's representatives over creation, to rule over the world so that this place more and more flourishes and reaches its full potential. And here again, if that were to happen, And if the human race had gone forward and reproduced to where they sort of conquered the world and brought it to its full potential, what is the end result? It ends up meaning God is going to get the attention and the honor that he deserves because he thought all of that up and he empowered all of that. We are just his representatives. It's not about us and how great we are. It's about him as the source of any greatness we have and our serving as his representatives, extending his authority, not something that belongs to us personally. And folks, that's just all another way of talking about worship. In our character and in our dominion, we are to draw attention to Yahweh as the divine source and as the only source of everything that is good in the universe. That is worship. Now, you keep reading in Genesis, and you realize that God gave these people a very specific command. And I'm going to argue that man's obedience 
To that command was also a kind of worship. If God says, don't eat of this tree, and Adam and Eve obey, what are they confessing by their willingness to submit themselves to the Lord's authority? They are confessing, you could put it this way, Lord, since you are the only deity, you alone have authority to rule over us. You alone have the right to define what is good. You alone have the wisdom to define what is good. And by obeying you, we are acknowledging you as the only God and as the only source of wisdom. That's an act of worship. Their obedience was an act of worship. But we understand that that's not what happened. And so the biblical storyline moves on to talk about the fall And what is the relationship between worship and the fall? I want you to think about the way that Satan tempted Eve in Genesis chapter 3. What was it that prompted her to disobey God's command and to eat the forbidden fruit? Was it not a questioning of the word of God, of his truthfulness? Did God really say he wasn't serious? He's not going to do that. He's actually trying to keep something from you. Now, Eve did not use the word God for the serpent. She didn't physically bow down to him and say, you are now my God. But folks, practically speaking, she was worshiping him. She was holding him and his word in higher esteem than God and his word. That first sin, which of course was followed up by Adam's choice, it was a breakdown in worship. She was not just worshiping Satan. Wasn't she also worshiping herself? As we read some more about the temptation, one of the great appeals was like, if you disobey, you're going to be like God. You can achieve some status that you don't already have, which was, of course, a lie. She already had the noble and high privilege of being the image of God. But, but, but Satan says, you can be like God. You can enjoy this greatness. Pursue it by disobedience. There's that longing for greatness that, instead of being pursued according to the way God had laid out, was now turned in on herself. And verse 6 says that she saw the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes and to be desired to make one wise. What's happening with that appeal? Eve is again placing her desires above the desires of God. What I want and what I think this is going to achieve for me is more important. I'm going to honor that more than what the Lord has said. There's another breakdown in worship. This is what theologians have talked about when they have defined sin in terms of disordered affections, that the desire and the love that ought to be directed to God are now bent back toward myself to where functionally I become the decision maker, I become God. And this isn't just Genesis. The Apostle Paul goes on at length about this in Romans chapter 1 as he's detailing for us the whole story of human depravity and the story of human idolatry, how does it begin? He says in verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him, worship. 
They did not give thanks to him, worship, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, we're going to come back to that passage, Lord willing, in the next message, because commandment number two is going to get into the worship of images specifically, and Paul develops that point as well. For now, I'm just making the point that sin is fundamentally a breakdown in worship, that we end up disobeying God's specific commands when we disobey the general command to recognize and to reverence him as God. And we can look at other passages in Scripture, particularly those that target the heart affections or bent and disordered affections that lead to sin. Think about 1 John 2.15, probably mirroring the struggle that Eve faced when it tells us that all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. What is this all about? Not doing the will of God, but giving in to my desires as the ultimate thing and as the way to achieve a really worthwhile, a really great, a really satisfying life. That passage in 1 John, it doesn't use the word idolatry, but that is, in essence, what it's talking about. It's talking about our loves. It is talking about placing our own fallen desires in a position of supremacy over the will of God. Now, the question is, how is the Lord going to address that breakdown, that distortion in worship? And we come to really the heart of the matter as we consider worship and redemption. Think about how the story unfolds and how before too long in chapter 12, God chooses this man Abraham to be his instrument for blessing all families of the earth. Where did Abraham come from? And what was his life like before the Lord intervened? Genesis 12 doesn't really say a whole lot about it, but you can just jump ahead to Joshua 24:14, and we read at that point that Abraham actually worshipped other gods before he left Ur. And when he made the choice to follow the Lord to the promised land, it involved an abandonment of the gods that he and his family used to worship. There was a change in the area of worship that really drove the decisions that the Lord enabled Abraham to make. We don't have a lot of information about Abraham's background, but of course the rabbis who gave themselves to answering questions the Bible doesn't answer had a lot of interesting ideas on this sort of thing. In fact, there is an interesting rabbinical tale that has to do with Genesis eleven twenty-eight, which is getting to the call of Abram, and this comment that Abram's brother Haran died in Ur, quote-unquote, in the presence of his father Terah. And the rabbis are like, well, I wonder what happened there. What was behind the death of this brother before they started to make their way over? And they came up with a story that's called Abraham and the idol shop, trying to answer that question. This is from a rabbi by the name of Hiyah. He says, Terah was a manufacturer of idols. Terah had an idol shop. He once went away somewhere and left Avraham to sell them in his place. A man came in and wished to buy one. How old are you? Abraham asked the man. Fifty years old, he said. 
And here was Abraham's reply, Woe to such a man who is 50 years old and would worship a day-old object. So at this point, Abraham has paid allegiance to Yahweh. He has now devoted himself to this God. He recognizes the folly of idolatry, and he's getting these digs in as people come to buy idols in his dad's shop. On another occasion, a woman came in with a plate full of flour and requested him, take this and offer it to them, to the idols. So he took a stick and broke them, that is, the idols, and he put the largest idol. When his father returned, he demanded, what have you done to them? I cannot conceal it from you. A woman came with a plate full of fine meal and requested me to offer it to them. One claimed, one of the gods said, I must eat first. While another claimed, I must eat first. Thereupon the largest one arose, took the stick, and broke them. Terah was not laughing. And he says to him, Why do you make sport of me? Have these gods any knowledge to be able to fight like that? Abraham said, should not your ears hear what your mouth has said? That you sell these idols, and yet you have just said they have no knowledge. Well, Terah was so upset, he seized Abraham and delivered him to Nimrod. Nimrod said, let us rather worship water which quenches fire. And this leads into a funny little exchange. He says, Abraham says, no, Abraham said, Let us rather worship water, which quenches fire. Nimrod says, let us worship water. Let us rather worship the clouds, which bear the water, Abraham said. Let us then worship the clouds. Nimrod said, let us worship the wind, which disperses the clouds. Abraham said, let us worship the wind. Nimrod said, let us worship human beings, which can stand up to the wind. Abraham said, you are just banding words was the way Nimrod replied. We will worship nothing but the fire. So he started out urging that they worship fire, and Abraham engaged him in this little back and forth, just trying to get him to see the stupidity of all this. Behold, I will cast you into the fire, and let your God, whom you adore, come and save you from it, Nimrod said. Now Haran, all right, now we get back to the the point of the story, Haran, his brother, was standing there undecided, about which God to worship. If Abraham is victorious, I will say that I am of Abraham's belief. While if Nimrod is victorious, I will say that I'm on Nimrod's side. That was his approach. He was sort of hedging his bets. When Abraham descended into the fiery furnace and was saved, Nimrod asked him, of whose belief are you? He'd already decided what he's going to do. He says, I'm of Abraham's belief. Thereupon Nimrod seized Haran and cast him into the fire. His innards were scorched. He died in the presence of his father. Hence it is written, Genesis eleven twenty eight, and Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah. Now, that's a silly story. But it shows how the Jewish people understood that something happened. That Abraham was turning his back on his upbringing and what his father originally worshipped, and rejected the gods of the culture that surrounded him. 
We could put it this way, that by calling Abram, Yahweh was delivering this man from the falsehood and the degradation of idolatry. And we know that that emphasis, that God, when he sets out to rescue people, he isn't just about rescuing them physically. Like, I'm going to take you out of this land where maybe things aren't so great and give you a better land. Or I'm just going to take you out of bondage and set you free so that you can enjoy your life. That's not the essence of redemption. The essence of redemption is to switch who you are worshiping. Remember all those stories in Exodus as plague after plague, what the Lord was doing was not just judging Egypt, but he was rebuking the idolatry of these people. And he says in chapter 12, verse 12, that with that last plague, especially on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. And so with all that background, it's no wonder that when God begins to teach his people about what he desires of them, the very first commandment is to urge them, worship me alone. Surely you've learned this simple point that I alone am worthy of your worship. The commandment itself represents an aspect of redemption or deliverance. The Lord didn't want to just get the Israelites out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of them. He wanted to rescue them from the falsehood and the degradation of the idolatry that had surrounded them for hundreds of years. And if these folks were to grasp just that one almost obvious point that this is the only God and he deserves my worship, if that attitude had been there really all of the other commandments would have fallen into place. I mean, if they worshipped Yahweh alone, then it would stand a reason that God knew what he was talking about, and they should follow everything else that he said. And so what did he say in the other commandments? He says in the second one, don't worship me or other gods through images. He gets to determine how he wants to be worshipped. He gets to determine how we treat his name. Don't take it in vain. He gets to determine how you order your time and so observe the Sabbath. He gets to determine how there is a hierarchy of authority in life and there are parents and their children and you're to honor your parents. This is all a reflection of you defaulting to God as God that the structures he sets up, you live under. He gets to express to us how to value human life and how to value human property. This is all just a reflection of our recognition of his supremacy. And because of how foundational it is to have the right object of worship, this does not end here in Exodus. You know the story of the Old Testament. It's just one long litany of failure, especially in the area of idolatry. And how the prophets are so often rebuking God's people for that, and how they are promising that one day he is going to cleanse them from that entirely. Isaiah 17, in that day man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the works of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. This is the great message of hope of the prophets. God is going to fix this idolatrous bent of his people. And yet it's not just an Old Testament emphasis. 
we know that this first commandment applies to us directly without having to give a big discussion about Old and New Covenants. This one applies to us directly because the New Testament continues to drive home this basic point that we must worship only the one true God. Think about Jesus when he comes. And here is the second Adam come to live and die in our place and to obey the Lord like Adam and Eve failed. And what was one of the temptations that Satan presented to him? Worship me like Eve and Adam ended up doing. And he quotes the words of Deuteronomy 6.13. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. When Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman about what this new covenant is about, how does he present it? It is in in terms of worship. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking people to worship in spirit and truth. When the Apostle Paul describes the conversions of the Thessalonian people, he said that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's one way to describe conversion. You turn from worshiping whatever it was before, and now your affection is directed to the one true and living God. And so no wonder when he talks to the Corinthians about some of their problems, he wants to teach them not to participate in these, in these pagan feasts that occur within the complex of these idolatrous temples. And he says, don't get involved with that because, 1 Corinthians 10.20, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. Think about 1 John again. And later in this book, actually at the very end, John is kind of wrapping things up, and it's just delighting in who Jesus is. And he says, we know the Son of God has come. He's given us understanding so we may know him. We are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. It doesn't stop there. He ends the book, the letter, with this one line, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And you want to connect that with what he just said about Christ. The point is, as he's displayed throughout that letter, that there are actually false views of Jesus even that turn him into a false god to where he is no longer worthy of our worship. Turn away from bad ideas, from wrong ideas, even about Jesus. You may be worshiping a false god by the name Jesus. And the the, the New Testament continues to drive home that point. And yet... We don't want to limit idolatry to sort of technical idolatry where you're actually worshiping some some being or some image. The New Testament doesn't leave it at that either. It also speaks of idolatry in functional terms, where we're not necessarily thinking of this person or this thing as deity, but for all practical purposes, we are giving them the ultimate allegiance that deity deserves because we think they're so great or because we think they're going to satisfy us. Isn't this what Jesus had in mind when he said, don't lay up for yourself treasures in heaven? And then he says, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew chapter 6. The thing that you really view as valuable 
as the thing to live my life for, as the thing to be pursued. That's ruling your heart, and it's determining everything else that comes out of it. Functionally speaking, that is your God. Or like in Ephesians 5.5 and Colossians 3.5, Paul says that covetousness, the the out-of-control desire for things that you don't have, is actually a form of idolatry. When you and I desire and pursue things that are not God's will for us, those things functionally have become our God. We are elevating them to the position of supremacy that God alone deserves. Which is why the New Testament presents the whole of the Christian life. Though you can get into the weeds of what the Lord calls us to do, you can actually boil it down very simply. And I don't know how many times I keep coming back to Romans 12. It's just the, just the summary of like everything. I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord, which is your reasonable worship. And everything of the details of the Christian life are just expressions of that fundamental recognition, Yahweh is my God through Christ, and he's had mercy on me to change my wonder and my worshiper so that it's directed toward him alone. And folks, this is how we need to be thinking about the Christian life and about the struggles that we face and about our failures and our battle with sin, learn to think of your decisions in that process as an act of worship. Learn to think of your battles internally as battles in worship. I really appreciate the writings of David Pallison, who's with the Lord now, but he gave a huge long list of questions to really help people grapple with this issue. And you can go too far in sort of analyzing yourself and taking your spiritual temperature all the time. But there is still a place, given all the Bible's emphasis on worship, to think about my heart and my choices along these lines. And so he has, here's just some of the questions. What do you love? Like, what does your heart really go out to? Like, I really enjoy this and want it. Or what do you hate? What do you just react against? What do you seek, aim for, and pursue? What are your goals and expectations Where do you bank your hopes? What do you fear? What do you not want? What do you tend to worry about? Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, security? Whom must you please? Whose opinion of you counts? For whom do you desire approval and fear rejection? What do you think about most often? What preoccupies or obsesses you in the morning? To what does your mind drift instinctively? These kinds of questions can help us analyze ourselves a little bit and to think in terms of whatever I do today. It's all going to be an act of worship. Either I am choosing to honor God as the supreme one or I am choosing to honor myself or someone else as the supreme one. Questions like that, they do help us uncover the functional idols that drive our choices. Or think of it this way. Questions like that, they help you see that every sin is a relational matter. That it is not just about breaking some law. That it is about rejecting God himself. That it is about choosing not to love him and express devotion to him, 
but to take your affections and latch them on to someone or something else. Now, you say, I see that, but how do I deal with that when my heart is really struggling? And I really sense this inclination to worship someone or something else. Folks, the problem is not going to come about by just berating ourselves for our idolatry. We probably don't need that much help to recognize what's happening in our hearts. Our idols have to be expelled by a greater glory. Our idols have to be by the greater glory of the one true and living God. You think about even today, the weather. And I don't know how you felt when you got up and you're groggy because of this time change. Like, oh, it's cold and now it's raining and wet as I go to church. And I don't know how many trips I made to the car taking food and I'm getting wet and trying to struggle with my umbrella. I got this big cake. And... But actually, I am so thankful that it's raining because this is pollen season. And I hate pollen more than I hate rain. And what does the pollen do? It washes, what does the rain do? It washes the pollen away. It refreshes the atmosphere. It pushes out the bad stuff. And folks, this is what I'm saying. There's a famous sermon by Thomas Chalmers. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. God uses the realities about himself and his glory and his gospel as your mind is turned to it to actually move you away from idolatry and to tear out the idols and direct your affections to him. And so the answer is to fill our minds and our hearts with God himself, with the glory of his attributes, with the majesty of his works of creation and providence, with the beauty of his plan of redemption, which is ultimately the beauty of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And one other way we can do that is to reflect on what worship is going to be like when this plan of redemption comes to its consummation. And so we come to the end of the story, worship and the new creation. And all I have to say to that is, read the last couple chapters of Revelation. Look at the prospect, the future that has been predetermined for believers in Jesus Christ. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs water water of life without payment, to the one who conquers, he will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the glory that awaits us. Eternity with Christ is an eternity of worship. Worthy is the Lamb. And may the Lord use our future with him to minister to us the worship that we desire even here on earth. We're going to close by...